Well, this morning as we continue in the book of First John, I, I'd like to ask you to picture with me for a moment. Uh, you may be getting hungry right now as we sit here in church and you're thinking about lunch already. And I want you to imagine you go home after church and you're thinking to yourself, what am I going to have for lunch? And you think, well, I'm, I'm going to have a turkey sandwich today. And so you, you go to your refrigerator and you open it up, you pull out the turkey, you pull out the cheese, you got the bread on the counter, you're pulling out some mustard. And then you're thinking, oh man, you know what would be really good with my turkey sandwich? How about some mayonnaise? I'm going to put some mayonnaise on my turkey sandwich, and so you open up the refrigerator, and you grab the jar of Hellman's mayonnaise out of the refrigerator, and you're all excited, but what you don't know is that as you're here this morning in our services, uh, one of your kids is back at home playing a joke on you today, and, and, and what they've done is they've taken the jar of mayonnaise, and they've scooped out all the mayonnaise, they've emptied it all out, and they've repackaged it with Crisco shortening. And so now, when you go home later, you go to make your sandwich, and uh, you pull out the jar of mayonnaise. On the outside, it looks like mayonnaise. The, the label says mayonnaise, and it spreads like mayonnaise, and you're thinking, wow, this is going to be great. But friends, when you bite into that sandwich, what's going to happen? You're, you're going to gag on it, right? You're going to choke because Crisco shortening is very different from mayonnaise. Now, now, friends, I, I share this illustration with us this morning because this is the common reality that happens with every cult that has ever existed from the beginning of the Christian faith. Every non-Christian cult, what they seek to do is they seek to use the label and image of Christianity, but they empty out Christianity of all of its historical, orthodox, biblical teaching and then they repackage it with their own man-made teachings and beliefs. And, and this has been taking place for 2,000 years. Non-Christian cults coming in the name of Jesus Christ, claiming to be Christian, outwardly looking very Christian, using the label, using all the terminology, but inside they offer something very different. And John, in the book of 1 John, as we've seen this summer, is combating this very reality as he seeks to help the early Christians counter a growing trend in the late first century, a new non-Christian cult that was developing known as Gnosticism. And we've talked some about Gnosticism this summer already, but what the Gnostics were doing was essentially taking the label of Christianity, coming, claiming to come in the name of Jesus, claiming to teach the things of Jesus, but what they had done was they had emptied out true Christianity and repackaged it with their own man-made teachings and beliefs. And so if you recall from our study so far this summer, the Gnostics denied a number of orthodox, historic, biblical truths. For example, they denied the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They, they denied that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. If you remember, the Gnostics said, no, Jesus didn't have a physical body. Jesus wasn't human. He was a spirit being. And so they denied the incarnation. They denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't rise from the grave in, in bodily form. He was a spirit being. They denied the believer's battle with sin, that, that we should even be struggling with sin, that, that we should be trying to mortify or put our sin to death. They said that's irrelevant. You don't need to worry about the sins in the world, in the flesh, in the body. All that matters is the spirit. And, and so they denied all of these orthodox Christian truths. 
They, they also taught that salvation comes through secret knowledge and rituals. In other words, if you don't have our knowledge, if you're not part of our insider group, then, then you're missing out on the true path to salvation. And this was the situation John was combating in his letter, the, the letter we know as 1 John. John was trying to encourage these early believers to make sure that, that they understood the truth and held fast to the truth and didn't fall for the lies and errors being promoted by this growing Gnostic heresy. And what we're going to see this morning in our passage today is John once again is going to encourage the early Christians in the late first century to hold fast to the truth. He, he wants to make sure they're consuming the real thing. And as we're going to see this morning, John is essentially going to say to these early Christians, look at you've caught the mail. You've tasted the real thing. So eat it and enjoy and don't ever settle for anything less than the real genuine deal. Today's passage, as you're going to see here in a moment, is a, is a combination of both affirmations of who we are, what we are as followers of Christ, but also admonitions, encouragements to avoid being led astray. And friends, this is a message that wasn't just important for the early believers 2,000 years ago, but this is a message today that's just as meaningful and relevant for us today, 2,000 years later. We need these reminders. We need reminders of who we are in Christ, the riches we have in Christ, but we also need the admonition, the encouragement to avoid being led astray by the enticements of the world. And so we're going to look at that this morning as we look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Here's the plan for this morning. We're going to read our passage, then I want to highlight two truths found in our passage this morning. Two truths followed by one huge point of application. One huge point of application. So two truths, one point of application. Let's start by reading our passage this morning, 1 John 2, 12 through 17. You can... Follow along on the screens or in your Bible. Starting in verse 12, John says this. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. An important passage for us this morning, a passage containing both affirmation of who we are in Christ but also important encouragements to hold fast to the faith and to not be led astray by the temptations of this world. We're going to look at two truths this morning in our passage. Number one, the gospel offers us a security that cannot be lost. 
In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a security that cannot be lost. Friends, it's, it's no shock to say that we live in uncertain times. You turn on the news at night and it's hard not to become anxious by what we see and watch. We, we have political debate in our country. We have cultural debate in our country. We have the economic ups and downs. We have the uncertainty of global events. And there's all of these things that, that lead to anxiety and sometimes despair. And, and, and there's so much uncertainty about the future. And yet, friends, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we find three truths we can be confident in. Truth that, that cannot be lost. As the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 6.19 tells us, the gospel is an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. And so we need to know and hold on to the gospel and look to the gospel as our source of security and certainty. John highlights here in our passage this morning three ways, three ways that we have a security in the gospel that cannot be lost. The first John highlights for us is forgiveness of sin. We have forgiveness of our sins. John writes in verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. John starts out in this passage by addressing the church. He calls us his little children. This is a term of endearment John has used already in this passage in reference to the church. He's speaking to believers here, universally referring to all of us as his children. And John could speak to us as his children for two reasons. Number one, because John was an apostle of Jesus Christ. At this time, he was the last of the living apostles. He was the last apostle, and so he's speaking from his authority as a, as a father over the church, calling them his little children. But he's also speaking to the church from a position of age and maturity. See, John was probably in his 80s or so when he wrote this letter. And as many of our older friends here in the church know, sometimes that maturity comes with the privilege of speaking to younger folks as our little children. It's a term of endearment. And so John is referring to all of us, to the church as a whole, as his little children. And he says, little children, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven you. We have forgiveness of sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked about this two weeks ago, how Jesus is our advocate before the Father. Jesus is our propitiation, our halasmos in Greek, which means he bore the wrath that we deserve to pay for our sins. He stood in our place. He took that upon him, and he became the means of our reconciliation with God. And so we have forgiveness of sin because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice in verse 12, John says that this forgiveness of sin that we receive through the gospel is for his namesake, for God's namesake, for the sake of God's name. We, we often think about the, the result of our salvation and, and our forgiveness of sin as being primarily about what we get out of it, right? That, that God saves us from our sin, that he wanted us so badly that he saved us from our sins, right? God, God didn't want heaven without us, so he brought heaven down in Jesus Christ. And we, we have this very me-centered focus of the gospel. And friends, there is that component to the gospel. But John says here in verse 12, look it, it's not so much about you. It's about him. He did this for his namesake. He did it for his honor and glory. He did it for his nature and his character and to 
be the one who is worthy and due of all our praise. See, God saved us for his name's sake to bring himself honor and glory. 1 John 1, 9, John tells us that God is faithful and righteous. And so God was confirming that of his character in our salvation, proving his faithfulness, proving his righteousness, proving true the thousands of verses in the Old Testament pointing towards the coming of a Messiah, the promises pointing towards the coming salvation, our freedom, our liberation. God was vindicating his name by proving himself faithful. It's all about his namesake. And because of that, we can take the assurance of our salvation to the bank. Secondly, John tells us that we have a security in the gospel and that we have fellowship with God. Because of what Christ has done for us, we have fellowship with God. And more than just fellowship, friends, because of the gospel, we have a father. We have a father in heaven. John, in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 12, John says this, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. See, friends, when we believe in the name of Jesus, when we put our hope and trust in Jesus for our salvation, he gives us the right to become his children, children of God. And so here in verse 13, John says to the fathers in the church, He says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. They've experienced salvation, and through their salvation, they have fellowship with him who has been from the beginning. Fellowship with God, a a father in heaven. Now, this raises the question, why why does John make this a point of affirmation for the fathers? Right? I mean, isn't this true for all believers? Well, friends, it's absolutely true for all believers. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you too have the privilege and security of fellowship with him, with the Father. But I think John was doing something intentional by highlighting the fathers on this point. You see, what I think he's doing here is making a special point that there is something different, something meaningful, a special depth of relationship with the Lord that comes from walking faithfully with him over many years. I see some of you nodding your heads in affirmation. See, some of you know that there's a sweetness that comes. There's a confidence that comes, a joy, a peace that comes from walking with the Lord over decades, through the valleys, to the mountaintops, through the joys and the tribulations, seeing and experiencing and witnessing God's faithfulness through the years. And I think that's why John speaks to the fathers in particular. You know him. You've lived it. You've experienced it. One of my favorite privileges as pastor here is Sunday mornings greeting people at the back doors. And I love our senior community here at Lakes Free Church. I love our seniors Because so many of them on Sunday mornings just radiate the joy of the Lord. And friends, many of them are going through very difficult seasons in life. Sicknesses, facing the loss of spouses, going through difficult trials as they end their season in this world. And yet there's a joy and a love and a hope that just exudes and radiates from them. And that comes from a life of walking faithfully with the Lord over many decades. 
And so John speaks to the fathers here. You have fellowship with God. You know him who was from the beginning. John points out, thirdly, the, the third blessing of our security in the gospel is freedom from the enemy. Through the gospel, John says, you have overcome the enemy. We have victory over our adversary, the devil. And here John speaks in particular to the young men in the church. John says in verse 14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, friends, again, I think this truth would apply to all of us who put our hope and trust in Jesus. But I think John is singling out the young men in the church for a very intentional reason. And, and I think it was because they might have needed a special word of affirmation at this time. You know, many of us would attest that in our youth and immaturity, it's often easy to become susceptible to, to doubts and to questions and to wonder if we're really walking the right path. And I think as this early church was struggling with the reality of these false teachers coming in and casting doubt upon the truth of Christianity, as they were dealing with the challenges of a culture that was hostile to Christianity and the growing opposition of the government, the Roman Empire, I think for all of these reasons, the young men in the church may have been asking the question, is following Jesus really worth it? Am I really walking the right path? And so John writes to encourage them. He says, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And because of that, you have overcome the evil one. Have no doubts about it. This is the truth. You're walking the path. You found victory over the enemy. Notice John says the basis of their freedom in verse 14 was strength through the knowledge of the word of God. He says they've overcome the enemy because they're strong. And where is their strength found? Their strength is found in abiding in the word of God. Two weeks ago, I was down in Chicago at the Free Church National Conference. Thursday and Friday after the conference, I met my family down at Wisconsin Dells, and we had a couple days together at Wisconsin Dells. We stayed at the Wilderness Hotel, and uh, one morning I was in the exercise room working out with my son Caleb, and we were uh, pumping iron together, you know, and I was showing him some, uh, some different techniques, lifting weights, and, and Caleb said to me, we had just done some bench press stuff, and Caleb said, Dad, I've lifted weights before and nothing happened. And I said, Caleb, it, it takes consistency. It takes time. you got to stay with it. you got to do it regularly. You, you can't just do it once and think you're going to grow in your strength. And, and it's the same thing when it comes to abiding in God's word, friends, and becoming strong as a result of the word. You, you can't just open your Bible once in a while and then put it up on your shelf and think you're going to turn spiritually into some kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, It doesn't work that way. You have to abide in the word. You have to regularly be in the word. And as you spend time exercising your spiritual muscles through the word, that's where our strength comes from, friends. And just like the fathers that John references earlier, his words here to the young men apply equally to us as well today. As we abide in the word, we receive strength. Strength to overcome the enemy. And so John wants to remind us, stay in the word. That's the source of your power. That's the source of your strength. 
And so John begins our passage this morning with this first truth. The gospel offers security that cannot be lost. We're forgiven of our sin. We have fellowship with God. We have freedom from the enemy. But at the same time, friends, John reminds us that we need to remain vigilant. We have to stay on guard. Why? Because we still live in this world. We still live surrounded by the fallen realities of a lost and sinful world. And the enemy will use this world to try to bring us down and to lead us off track and to get us sidetracked on detours that will lead us away from God's will for our lives. And so this leads to truth number two in our passage this morning. John also highlights for us the reality that the world offers promises that cannot be kept. Promises that cannot be kept. Let me read verses 15 through 16 again. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. John says, do not love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, what is the world John is talking about here? The, the word world in Greek is cosmos. And, and cosmos can refer to three things. It can either refer to the planet that we live on, the world. It can refer to the people of the world, like John three sixteen, God so loved the world. He's talking about the people there. Or it can refer to what John is meaning it here, to this fallen world system that we find ourselves in. A world corrupted by the reality of sin. A world struggling under the burden and weight of a spiritual disease called sin that has affected every aspect of creation. And so John is talking about this fallen world system and he says you cannot love the world, the fallen world system, and love God at the same time. It just doesn't work that way. Okay, if you love the world, the love of God is not in you. If you remember Jesus in Matthew 6, 24, he said, no one can serve two masters. Why? Because Jesus says you'll either love the one and hate the other or vice versa. And so we must choose. John tells us you cannot love both God and the world. This world system stands in total opposition to God. The fallen world system is opposed to God and his will and his ways. How can we love the things that God says are opposed to him? And so to follow one necessarily means disobeying the other. You're either following God and disobeying the ways of the world, or you're following the ways of the world and you're disobeying God. You cannot love the world and love God at the same time. But you see, we have a spiritual enemy who would try to convince us of just the opposite. See, we have a spiritual adversary, Satan, who we've talked about this summer, who comes to steal and kill and destroy, right? He comes to steal our joy walking with the Lord. He comes to kill our hope, believing that we could ever be reconciled to God again. He ultimately wants to destroy our lives and destroy our soul. And so Satan comes along and Satan says, no, 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 no. Don't listen to Pastor Jason. Don't listen to John bunch of baloney. You can totally love God and still do things and love the world at the same time. Okay? It's just like, you know, straddling a fence. 
right? All you do, right? Just straddle the fence. You got one leg over here in the kingdom. You do your Jesus thing on Sunday. Maybe go to a class on Wednesday night, whatever. But then, you know what? You just have the other leg over in the world and you kind of do that and you enjoy all that stuff. And no big deal. See, look it. It's all good. And that's what Satan gets us to believe, friends. That we can sit on this fence. But you know what? There's a big word written on that fence in bright red graffiti. And that word is compromise. And Satan tries to get us to compromise by straddling that fence, believing we can live in the world and live in the ways of the kingdom at the same time. But John says it just doesn't work that way. I want you to know something very important this morning, and don't ever forget this, friends. This idea that you can straddle the fence, please know this today. Every single fence has an owner, and Satan owns that fence. If you're straddling that fence thinking you can dangle one leg in the world and one leg in the kingdom of God, you're already buying into Satan's plan for your life because Satan owns that fence. That fence leads to despair and misery. And Satan gets us to buy into this lie that we can compromise and everything will be okay. How does he do this? He uses three primary tactics. John highlights them here in our passage in verses 15 and 16. He says, number one, Satan gets us to try to compromise through the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. What's John talking about here? He's talking about our appetites. He's talking about our sinful desires. A life dominated by the glorification of our senses and the gratification of our senses. That's a life that buys into the lust of the flesh. This is a life characterized by, by things like gluttony or, or drunkenness or sensual pleasures or laziness and sloth. It's about gratifying the fallen nature that exists within you. And Satan gets us to try to compromise in these ways. Number two, John tells us that Satan tries to get us to compromise through the lust of the eyes. This refers to our affections an excessive desire to possess what we see. We often think of the lust of the eyes in reference to sexual lust. And it would certainly include that. But, but the lust of the eyes can be anything, any excessive and unhealthy interest in something that you don't own or possess. I want that attractive woman. Or I want that bright, shiny red new car. Or I want that bigger house. And see what happens, the lust of the flesh causes us to give in to other sins like jealousy and envy and discontentment. Friends, understand this, when you buy into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, what you're doing is you're betraying your lack of trust in God's goodness and sovereignty. See, when you fall for the lust of the eyes, what you're saying to God is, I don't trust in your plans and purposes for my life. I don't think, God, that you've given me what I deserve. I don't think, God, that what I have and what you've blessed me with is enough. And so, God, I'm going to seek and lust after things that I don't have. And we compromise. John says, thirdly, it's not just the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, but Satan tries to get us to, to compromise by buying into the boastful pride of life. And what is this? This is pride in our achievements, our positions, our power, our possessions. It's all about the stuff that we attain. This is the idolatry of stuff. 
Look how great I am because I got this awesome car. Look how great I am because I've attained the heights in my company. Look how great I am because my bank account is so full. Look how great I am because I won that award or I've attained this status. And we put our pride in our achievements, our power, our positions, our possessions. This is, this is the person who's afflicted with the disease known as affluenza. It's all about me and what I can get out of life. Friends, I want you to notice something. The enemy hasn't changed his tactics in thousands of years. He's still attacking us in the same way that he's always attacked us. You go to Genesis chapter 3, for example. Adam and Eve, the, the original sin, the first fall. How did Satan attack Adam and Eve? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. What did Satan do? Look at it. I'm going to hold out a, a, a lovely piece of fruit, good for the flesh, appealing to the eyes, pride of life. It'll make you wise. The same three tactics Satan used to get Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. He's still using today. Think about Jesus and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. How did Satan tempt Jesus, right? He started out, hey, you're hungry, Jesus. You've been out here fasting. If you're hungry, you're the son of God. Tell these stones to become bread, the lust of the flesh. Go ahead and eat, Jesus. And then he takes Jesus on top of a mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, they can all be yours. The lust of the eyes. And then he takes Jesus to the top of the temple. If you're really the Messiah, throw yourself off the temple because you command angels. I mean, you're powerful. You're the son of God. Surely they'll come to your rescue. Trying to get Jesus to fall into pride. Friends, Satan's strategy hasn't changed in thousands of years. He attacks us on three fronts. And so we need to recognize this, friends. When the enemy attacks you, it's likely going to come in one of these three ways. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Know that. Be ready. Don't be naive. And how do you counteract that? How do you combat that? You do so by standing strong in the word of God. Just like the young men John addressed earlier. That's where our strength comes from. That's how we overcome the adversary. It's the power of the word. It's like one commentator I read this week. He says that the word of God removes the fangs from the serpent and declaws the lion. Satan can't stand up to us when we abide in the power of the word. That's where our strength comes from. Now we come to verse 17 in our passage. And here John gets to the heart of why the temptations of the world and all its promises are nothing more than empty lies. Let me read this for us again, verse 17. John says, The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. This word passing away in the original Greek is an interesting word. The, the word is paragetai, and it means to, to depart, to move along, to cease to exist. In the first century, this word would have been recognized by John's listeners as referring to a, a theatrical setting. It referred to a theater when a, a stage set was removed. It was taken off stage and removed and a new stage set replaced it. 
And so understand, friends, when John says this world is passing away, what he's saying to us here is this. Look at The curtain is falling. The curtain is falling on this fallen world system. It is going away. It is departing. It is gone. It's about to be replaced. It's going to be removed. The Lord is coming back, and he's coming back soon. And when he does, all of this stuff is going to be taken away. And something new is going to come in and replace it. And friends, if this is true, and it is, why on earth would we spend our lives investing our time and our talents and our treasures in things that are temporary and passing away? John says, don't make that investment. It's a bad investment. It would be like going to your investment advisor tomorrow and your investment advisor says to you, hey, I got this great investment for you. All you need to do is just just invest a few thousand dollars and I promise it's going to go like gangbusters for like two years. But after two years, you're going to go belly up and lose everything. Who on earth would make that investment? It's a bad deal. It's a bad trade. Buying into the promises of the world is always a bad investment and they always lead to ruin. One of... uh, One of America's great authors, a man by the name of Ernest Hemingway. I've been uh, intrigued by his story for a long time. I first uh, learned of Ernest Hemingway in high school when I had to read his classic book, The Old Man and the Sea. I read a number of his stories since then, and this last year I watched a movie about the life of Ernest Hemingway. It's an interesting story. Ernest Hemingway grew up in Wheaton, Illinois. Grew up in a solidly evangelical Christian home. Grew up in a solid evangelical church. In fact, his grandfather was close friends with Dwight L. Moody, the famous evangelist. Hemingway's mom and dad were training to become medical missionaries. Hemingway grew up tithing his offering, memorizing passages of scripture, in a devout home, a church just like Lakes Free. But when Hemingway left home after high school, He moved to Kansas City. He became a reporter. He started living and dabbling in the pleasures of the world. Drunkenness, women. He moved to Europe. He married a worldly woman. He ended up having four different wives. As he aged, he became increasingly despondent of his life. One of Hemingway's friends says that in his later years, he grew distant from everyone. He would not stand up straight, and he stopped communicating verbally. Every hour was filled with the pain of being truly lost and alone. Hemingway once described his life like this. I live in a vacuum that's as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there's no current to plug into. Finally, on a sunny Sunday afternoon in Idaho at the age of 61, Hemingway took a shotgun put it to his head and ended his life. What a sad story. Someone who grew up knowing the treasures of the gospel and yet was enticed by the lies of the world. He loved the world, but all it gave him were broken promises. You know, Hemingway's story reminds me of another individual mentioned in Scripture, a man by the name of Demas, We don't know a lot about Demas. His name only comes up in two passages. 
In the first passage, Colossians 4.14, the Apostle Paul mentions Demas as a faithful co-worker for the gospel. He was one of Paul's traveling companions on one of his missionary journeys. And Paul mentions Demas as a faithful worker for the gospel right next to Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts. We don't hear about Demas again until Paul's final letter, the book of 2 Timothy. And in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul is awaiting his execution in Rome. He's languishing in a dungeon in Rome, and he writes to Timothy. He says, Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. How tragic, friends. Imagine Demas facing the Lord on judgment day, having to give an account for his life, having loved this present world. How about you today? How would God characterize your life today? Do you love this present world? This leads me to our single point of application this morning. And it's a huge, huge point of application. Today's passage offers us a choice that cannot be ignored. Will we be overcomers of the world or will we be overcome by it? In other words, when you consider the promises and warnings in John's word today, will you choose to walk in the fullness of your identity as a forgiven and free child of God? Or will you succumb to the shallow offerings and empty promises of a world that is passing away? And friends, the choice you make in this matter will affect the whole trajectory of your life. I came across a story this week about the, the well-known character actor Charles Dutton. You may recognize him. He's appeared in over 40 movies, numerous TV shows. What most people don't know about Charles Dutton, however, is that as a young man, he spent seven years in prison for manslaughter. This reporter asked Charles Dutton, Charles, how, how did you get your life on track? How did you avoid the, the, the common reality of institutionalization which affects so many young men who go to prison and end up following in this path of crime and repeated incarceration? How, how did you get your life on track? Charles Dutton said, when I was in prison, I never decorated my cell. I never decorated my cell. See, Dutton understood that that cell was not his home. That cell was not his future. That cell was not going to contain him. That there was something better ahead. There was something to hope for ahead. And so he didn't decorate his cell. Sadly today, I think there are far too many Christians who spend their lives decorating their cells we become far too comfortable and enamored with the things of this world. Things that God tells us leads to ruin. Things that God says ultimately have no lasting value. And this is why, friends, John began our passage this morning by reminding us of what is real and true. By pointing us back to our true identity as forgiven and free children of God. You see, here's the thing. There's only one way to truly overcome the world, friends. You know how you do that? You do that by setting your affections on something greater than the world. 
And the only way to set your affections on something greater than the world is to look to the one who has overcome it, to Jesus Christ. And so we need to look upon Jesus Christ. We need to gaze upon the glory of the Lord. We, we need to revel in the glorious treasures we've been given in the gospel. We, we need to remember those truths that in the gospel we have a security that cannot be lost. Forgiveness of sin, fellowship with the Father, freedom over the enemy. We have an advocate before God. We have a propitiation who takes God's wrath. We have hope for the future. We have a peace that passes all understanding. We have a Lord who's coming again. We have treasures awaiting us in eternity. And friends, it's only by looking upon Jesus and setting our hearts upon Jesus that we'll be able to overcome the temptations of this world. Friends, my prayer for us this morning is that all of us might look to Jesus and that God would give us the grace to overcome, to say no to the lies of the world and to pursue him with our whole hearts in faithfulness, integrity, a single-minded devotion and passion for Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this powerful passage. We thank you for the words of affirmation that we find here, the, the truths that we are reminded of about what we have in the gospel. And God, we also appreciate and thank you for the admonitions you've given us here. Not to fall prey to the lies of the world. So Lord, we need your grace. We need your protection. We need your help, Lord. And God, give us a passion and a hunger for you, for your word, a, a single-hearted devotion to pursue you, Lord. God, set our affections upon you and the glorious treasures we have in the gospel. May you become such a bright, blazing light in our eyes that, that everything else is just pale and dark in comparison. God, may we revel in glory in all we have because of what you have done for us. We are children of the King. God, may we never waste our time playing in the mud. But may we look to our lofty position in Jesus. And may we set our eyes on the hope that is, in that is ahead of us. We thank you, God. We glorify you. We praise your name. Amen.